See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them in him. We have been in the book of Colossians since the first Sunday of March. And the Colossian church, to set some context, you know what we're dealing with here. The Colossian church was facing at least one very persuasive false teacher who, maybe more, who was proclaiming a belief system that challenged the sufficiency of Christ. They was challenging his ability to provide a full life, a life that was filled with abundance, a life that was filled with the presence and the power of God. He combined aspects of Christianity and Judaism and kind of mystical paganistic thought, maybe even some mystical Judaism. And so Paul, in verse 8, we've been in this passage, verses 8 to 15 now, for two weeks. At the very beginning of this passage, in verse 8, he said, Beware of spiritual pirates. They proclaim a false religion that is just nothing more than empty words that are filled with human tradition and beliefs that behind those words and those beliefs are dark spiritual powers. Instead, he tells us to be captivated by Christ. And last week, we saw that all that, God, that, all that is deepest in God is summed up in Christ, which is a pretty good reason why we ought to be captivated by him. In verses 9 and 10, Paul kind of expands on this idea, answering that question of why we should be captivated by Christ. And we saw three of those reasons in verses 9 and 10. But this morning, we're going to finish out that thought. Because verses 11 to 15 are giving us one final conclusive reason why we should be captivated by Christ. And to summarize what is going on in this passage, this captivating reason, it has to do with our union with Christ. Because of our vital union with Christ, the dominating power of sin and Satan is eternally broken. In the first opening verses, all these words of circumcision and baptism, believe it or not, are referring to our vital union with Christ. Hear them again. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So as I was studying this week, I think providentially, I came across a, uh, an image in one of the uh, websites or social media, I forget what it was, but it was a, a general Pauline letter outline. 
You can apply this like to all the epistles of Paul. Grace, I thank God for you. Hold fast to the gospel. For the love of all that is holy, stop being stupid. <laughs> Timothy says hi. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, there's a lot there, right? <laughs> if you think about his epistles, man, that is a great, a great outline, a lot of truth there. But what is missing from that outline is something that appears in all of Paul's letters. Uh, more than 170 times, more than justification, sanctification, holiness of God, more than any of those things. It's the, as one theologian is referred to, it is the glue or it's the web that holds all of Paul's teachings and his understanding of the gospel together. It's the truth that we do hold fast to the gospel, but how we hold fast to the gospel, why we hold fast to the gospel, that is what is most dominant in his letters. And how we hold fast to the gospel is because through our union with Christ. Why do we hold fast to the gospel? Because we are united to Christ. That is the dominant theme in, in his teachings. In fact, if you think about the, the book of Colossians, he's already referred to this idea a couple of times. You remember Jacob's message where he was talking about the mystery of the gospel and then there was that verse where he says, I am filling up the suffering of Christ, which is a bizarre phrase, by, by serving you in, uh, by serving you Colossians even while I'm in prison. All of that was an aspect of union with Christ. A couple of weeks ago, uh, when we looked at the command to walk in Christ, and I gave you all those pictures. You remember the, the potter's hands and the, the foundation and, and the river and all of the, the school images. All of that was union with Christ. In fact, what should be added to that outline that we had is another point, and that is between hold fast to the gospel would be the line, uh, and Paul repeats himself several times over and over again in his book, especially on this theme. He comes to it again and again and again, and that's what he's done. He's already done it in chapter one. He's already done it earlier in chapter two. He's doing it here in, in this passage, and we'll see it again, most importantly, in chapter three. So these word pictures and all that he's referring to with the vital union of Christ, he does it intentionally. It's important. It's the web, the glue that holds everything together. Our union with Christ is foundational to our salvation. Church, we start out in life as human beings, not united to Christ, but united to Adam. We are in Adam. And because we are in Adam, we receive all of the curses that Adam received. Sin, tragedy, false worship, living for ourselves, being controlled by our own idols, and ultimately, if we persist, eternal separation from God for the wages of sin are death, eternal separation. In Romans chapter 5, Paul talks about this union with Adam. This is how we begin in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. As verses 11 and 12 in our passage remind us, through faith in Jesus, we are no longer united to Adam. 
Instead, we are united to Jesus in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. This union with Christ, it is foundational to our justification. It's foundational to God being able to declare us righteous, no longer enemies, but welcomed into his family as loved sons and daughters. That's how important union with Christ is. It's the foundation of all of that. Later in chapter 5, Paul makes this even more clear in the book of Romans. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. So, this important aspect, union with Christ, begs the question, why does Paul use circumcision and baptism in these verses to try to help us to understand the importance of this fundamental truth of the gospel? Well, let's remember that circumcision was associated with the Old Covenant. Circumcision identified the Jewish males of the Old Covenant with Abraham, with Abraham, the promises of God that he made to Abraham. And so by taking on that sign of the covenant, those Jewish males were now being associated with, standing in solidarity with Abraham, looking to experience the, the benefits of those promises made to Abraham. It associated them with the, the visible people of God. And the Old Covenant, this was the nation Israel. It was supposed to be a physical initiatory rite that actually has a much deeper spiritual meaning. It was, a, it was to be a sign of faith that applied to God's people by God's people who were trusting in him and his redemptive promises. It was meant to be placed upon that young child by a believing father and mother in anticipation of that child ultimately coming to faith, just like Abraham was that father of faith. Unfortunately, this isn't what ended up happening for the majority through the centuries. And so Paul in Romans chapter 2, in talking to Jewish members of the Roman church, says, listen, just because you have been circumcised on the outside does not actually make you a true Israelite. True Israelites are those who have been circumcised in their heart. The deadness of the heart has been cut away. The physical external sign is pointing to that inner reality, the greater spiritual truth that all of us need to have the deadness of our heart that we are born with as human beings cut away by God and replaced with a living, beating heart that can trust and commit ourselves to him. So the circumcision of the old covenant, it was significant. In its ultimate fulfillment, as we read in this passage, just like so many things in the Old Testament, Jesus says they all find their fulfillment in him. Their yes and amen in him. And so that little act of circumcision and that little amount of blood that had occurred again and again and again through the centuries was pointing the Israelites to the ultimate 
circumcision that would take place where Jesus would be cut off for his people and for their sins. And so in this verse, when he refers to the circumcision of Christ, he's talking about that ultimate cutting off that occurred on the cross to which that sign through the centuries applied to the boys was pointing them to one day the promised seed will come and he will be cut off so that we can have the forgiveness of our sins. Do you see why that is such a significant sign in the old covenant as it points us to Christ and it, it, was, it was speaking to how God was going to fulfill all the promises that he made to Abraham. Well, baptism in the new covenant is what circumcision was in the old. There's no better place in the scriptures to see the correlation between circumcision and baptism than in these verses where they are put side by side communicating their significance to the same spiritual truth. What circumcision was in the Old Covenant, baptism is in the New. They're different sides of the same coin. So in baptism, we are identifying with Jesus and his new covenant, which he brought for us through his shed blood. With the sign of baptism, we are aligning with God's people. We are standing in solidarity with them as the people of God. We, through faith in that baptism, are saying that when Jesus died, we believe that we died also. Through faith, when Jesus was buried for our sins, we were buried. And through faith, when Jesus rose from the dead, he, we too are raised from the dead to experience newness of life. Baptism is a God-given, God-commanded sign and seal of our union with Christ, of our identification with his people. No longer the nation of Israel, true Israel, in this age, the church. By the way, this is a rabbit, just some of you may be wondering. Uh, the association in these verses of baptism with Jesus' death and burial and then resurrection is not saying anything about the mode of baptism. Uh, I was taught for many years in a, in, a, in a tradition that this verse was actually one, yet one more proof that to have a valid baptism, you must be completely immersed in the water and then brought out in the water to identify with Jesus' death when you're standing up and burial uh, and when you go into water like Jesus went into the ground and then up again when the resurrection. And I can see why that may be attractive but I would remind you that Jesus was not buried in the ground. Um, he did not get immersed in dirt. He was placed in a cave. Um, and so the analogy kind of breaks down there. But more importantly, as William Hendrickson writes, if being buried with Christ, like in this passage or in Romans chapter 6, means that baptism must be by immersion, why should not being, quote, crucified with Christ indicate that baptism should be by crucifixion or to be planted with Christ should be some you know, sign that indicates us being put in the dirt with a bunch of fertilizer, I almost said manure, around us, okay? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, these are metaphors to describe the deeper spiritual reality. 
the word baptism, just to put a bow around this church, the, the word baptizo can mean immersion. It can mean pouring like we do at our church. It can mean sprinkling. One mode is not necessarily, I think, better than the other. It is what it signifies. However you do it, what it signifies is that we are now united with Christ. Baptism, like the Lord's Supper that we're going to take in a moment, is a new covenant sign and seal of our union with Christ. A union that is vital. It is all-encompassing. It is through our union with Christ that we have been justified and saved from our sins once and for all. It is through our union with Christ that we are sanctified and gradually made more holy through the work and presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's through our union with Christ that we receive all of God's blessings. It's through that union that we are nourished and fed by God and empowered to live for his glory. It's through that union in Christ that we look in faith to that day when we will be glorified and we will be transformed once and for all into the image of Christ. As Jesus now lives with God through that resurrection power, we now live for God through that very same resurrection power at work in us, waiting for that day in the future that we will soon see. This, this, this idea of union, the vital union of Christ is so important, so pervasive. We've seen it in chapter one. We'll see it in chapter two. We've seen it in chapter two a couple of times now. We're gonna see it in chapter three where Paul puts our entire battle against sin and our day-to-day -day lives as we seek to defeat sin and, in, in its, and how it's expressed in our lives and he links it right back to us drawing upon our union with Christ. This is how we defeat sin. This is how we live a life so that we are effective ambassadors for Christ. The importance of this idea, it, it can't be overstated in this passage. So because of our vital union with Christ, the dominating power of sin and Satan is eternally broken. Verses 11 and 12 Take care of the first half of that takeaway truth. Now let's turn to the remaining verses and see what it means that the dominating power of sin has been broken and our union with Christ. And most importantly, what we see in these final verses is how God is glorified in this very union. In verses 13 to 15, we see God working definitively. We see him working with finality as we're united to Christ through faith, the faith which he gives us by his grace. The finality of God in these verses that help us to understand what he did in order to unite us with Christ, what the results are of his work in our lives in uniting with Christ, they're, they're very specific. There's three of them. First of all, by bringing us to life, God freed us from the slavery of sin. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. When we think about our union with Christ, it would be an error to think that I am united to Christ because God did his part and I did my part. The only thing we contribute to our union with Christ is our sin. That's the only thing we contribute. This, our union with Christ 
is a definitive, absolute action of God out of his grace for us. He's the one who does this. He brings us to life. He regenerates us. It is through his grace and action alone that we are born again. And until this work of God is done, our sin is so profound, so all-pervasive, it, it consumes us. It's like death. It's as consuming as death. I, I like the illustration that um, Randy Pope gives in his training through, uh, on evangelism and his life issues training. He says, think of it like this. You know, I mean, yes, we look to the world and we see good people, moral people, people who are very nice, who are our neighbors and coworkers. In some cases, people who we might like more than people who are in our church, right? Or, or other Christians that we know. We like them more. So how can we say that that person is all consumed in sin, that they're dead in sin, that they need to be brought to life, that there's no good in them? How can we possibly say that? And, and the illustration that, that Randy gives is wonderful because it, it, it just applies to this. Think of it like this. Think that you work in a morgue, and one night the ambulance backs up, and they bring in a, a, the gurney in a body bag, and they open it up, and they put out on the table this just wonderful, beautiful young woman in her 20s, out of the club, dressed to the nines, clearly a beautiful young woman. And I mean, the, the color is still in her cheeks. She's not even been dead an hour. And, and you look at that woman, that young woman, and you're grieved because you say, what a waste. That this young woman had an aneurysm and, and just dies. A few moments later, another ambulance arrives they wheel the gurney in with a body bag, and the attendant says, oh, we got a bobber here. He puts that body bag out and opens it up, and you almost vomit uh, because this person had been in the water for several days, rotting and decomposing, and the crabs had gotten at them, and the gators and all the other wildlife, and they put that, let me tell you something, you ever smell that, you never forget that smell. It is, it is horrendous. It is horrible. That's why so many times when that happens, the, the more, they'll put something under their nose to, that's more powerful to mask the smell. It's that horrible. And so you have this beautiful young woman and the prime of life who's just died, looks like she could stand up off the table, and this other person who's been rotting and decomposing on the table right next to them. Now answer this question, which one is deader? Right. There are no degrees here. Now, now, one may be more putrid than the other, but they're both dead. It's all-encompassing, all-pervasive. They cannot do anything for themselves that is redeemable. It's just degrees of putridness. That's what we have in our world. We are all born dead. Just some of us stink more than others. <laughs> and so regeneration, being born again, it's according to his grace alone. We don't bring anything to this because we're dead. Paul says this in Titus chapter 3, for we ourselves were once 
foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Sola Deo Gloria. When it comes to our union with Christ, God alone gets the glory because he raised us from dead. He brought us to life freeing us from the slavery of sin. Secondly, you see in the end of verse 13 and 14 that by forgiving us, God delivered us from the guilt and the shame of sin, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I had an experience in sixth grade that I bet many of you might have had at some point in your schooling or life. I had a teacher who during the summer we all thought was just one. He was new to our school. We all, all my friends, we wanted him. He was so much fun. And we asked for Mr. Rigby and we all got in his class. And boy, was that ever false advertisement. Okay. This guy in the classroom was an ogre. Not only did he enforce to the T every rule of the rule book, he had a list of classroom rules that just, you know, that some of them were just absurd. And so it was inevitable, all of us, because of his rigidity. I mean, we're in sixth grade. You know what sixth graders are like. It was inevitable that we would break those rules. I can still hear Mr. Rigby say, Clem, that's going on the board. And he would walk over to the blackboard. Children, these were these devices. Anyway, parents explain blackboards. And he would write, you know, you'd have your name written down, you know. And, and then he would write what you did, and he'd leave space because he was assuming this was just the beginning for the day, right? <laughs> and you know you hated it because this meant you were going to lose recess time. The most treasured possession of every child in sixth grade. Recess, you're going to lose recess time. You're going to probably, if it continues... He would give out these, now I want you to write a hundred times, I will no longer disrespect Mr. Rigby in his class as he dispels nuggets of wisdom and have it for me tomorrow morning. Yeah, I mean, you just hated that. And then, of course, parents could be told, and then your tail would get torn up when you got home, all right? I mean, this was serious stuff. And uh, yeah, I know that sounds barbaric for some of you younger parents, but and it was. I mean, look what it did to all of us in here who are of these generations. I mean, we didn't defeat communism. We didn't create all these things that you love in your life. We didn't win all these wars. We didn't build an economy. I mean, it really messed us up. Just thought I'd throw that in there for free. <laughs> now, how does this relate? Because of our sin, our sin nature, <laughs> there was absolutely no way that we could obey the law of God. And his law, of, his law is not petty like Mr. Rigby's. His law is good and just 
and righteous. And so the law, in a sense, was standing over us, watching everything we do, measuring us, recording all the failures, of which there were tons, and condemning us. And if we actually could step outside of ourselves and make an objective evaluation, we would admit what the law says, that we should be ashamed of ourselves, and then we are irrefutably guilty. Irrefutably guilty. But God. God, in one final act, definitively wiped out all the sins of all of his people. God went up to your blackboard and he took this massive eraser and he started with your past sins and then he went to your present and, all, and he just erased all of them, took them off the board to never be written again. That's what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be united to Christ. Because Jesus died and was buried and rose again, God could go to the blackboard and erase all of them, and he's still just and holy when he does so. How is it that God could do that? Because he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's how he could do it. I like a translation back from the mid-1900s. J.B. Phillips translated these verses in this way. He says, he has forgiven you all your sins. Christ has utterly wiped out the damning evidence of broken laws and commandments, which always hung over our heads and has completely annulled it by nailing it over his own head on the cross. Isn't that a beautiful word picture of what happened on the cross? He says in this passage, he cancels the record of debt he sets it aside. This is the idea of taking a, like a, you remember the beware of pirates? They can carry you off in a bag like treasure. This is the same concept, except in this case, it's the whole record of your sins put into a trash bag, carried off, thrown into the incinerator. That's what God's done. That's why he deserves this glory that's associated with our union with Christ. One final one. In verse 15, by defeating Satan, God empowers us to resist the father of sin. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is a military uh, word picture. You've probably seen these kinds of things before. Uh, they're in sculptures and carvings throughout the Roman Empire. This is in Rome. This is, the, this is the, what is called the triumph of Titus. Titus was the defeater of the, of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and this is a relief, uh, picturing when he entered Rome with his victorious army and the captives and all the treasure. And that looks a whole lot like the Ark of the Covenant right there. Apparently, it's not in a U.S. government warehouse, but maybe it's in the Vatican or something. I don't know, but, but this was a real processional that would take place in history. And this is the word picture here. Here's a, here's a painting from Peter Paul Rubens from the 1600s. This is, uh, this is a picture, I think this might be Caesar and his triumphal entry. What would happen here is that there's this massive parade. Some of them would take three days. And they would start with the wagons filled with the treasure. 
and the, and the armaments and the weapons and everything that they wanted to, to bring back from that defeated country. And that would happen. And then would begin the train of people. These are people who had been defeated. Maybe the army, citizens. They're all going to go into slavery. At the back of that, that massive crowd of people would always be like the, the defeated general who would end up losing his head. Or maybe the king and the queen of the country, all who were, they were put at the back and then they were brought before the, the thousands of people who were watching this parade. And then right behind them was the defeating general who would stand in this carriage, clothed in purple, carrying the accoutrements of power and rule and government with a crown, a laurel oftentimes on his head. And as he would come through slowly, the crowds would go crazy cheering him, and then right behind comes the army. That word picture is what's at play here. This is what God has done to Satan. This parade has begun. The, the, the first portions have been coming down the line, but folks, this is going to end one day, and we see a vision of it in the book of Revelation, when we, with God and the entire army and people of God, watch that procession and Satan himself come before the right throne judgment of God, cast out of his presence for all of eternity, never to bother us again, because he has been defeated by Christ. And we enjoy the power and the experience of that defeat because of our union with Christ. This concept, Baptism points us to our union with Christ, and so does the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper, in many ways, gives us different aspects to help us to contemplate this truth. It, it encourages us to look back at that historical past union where we trusted in him, and he died, and he was buried, and he rose again, and we were saved from our sins. The Lord's Supper encourages us to with a future dimension. Again, based out of our union with Christ, where one day we will be with him for all of eternity and we're going to sit down and we're going to enjoy a meal, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it only happens because we are united to Christ. But there's very much a present dimension to the Lord's Supper that flows out of our union with Christ. It's this idea that because we are united to him right now, through his death, burial, and resurrection, he feeds us. He nourishes us. We are strengthened by his ministry and presence in our lives, in this room, because two or three are gathered together in his name. And there I am with them. So with this meal this morning, Jesus is with us. Spiritually, literally, he's in heaven, but spiritually, he's with us right now. And he encourages us to find our strength in him, to be nourished by this meal. This meal does something that we can't necessarily understand and explain. It is spiritual, and it's mysterious. It's part of that mystery of the gospel he tells us in John chapter 15, abide in me. And here he's talking about, again, this union that we have with him. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, 
He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you hear the language of present nourishment in those verses? Jesus speaks of this bluntly in John chapter 6, a passage that disturbed a lot of people at that time. Maybe it even disturbs you a little bit as you read it, because sometimes we misunderstand it. So Jesus said to them, truly, I truly, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. So when you think about the vine, abide in me so that you can receive your nourishment. Out of this union that you have with me, I strengthen you, I fulfill you. And, and, he, and here he says, to abide in me, eat my body, drink my blood. It's not literal, body and blood, but it's spiritually, it is. And somehow, in this little piece of bread, coming together, eating it in faith. Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, does something within us. He strengthens us, and he feeds us, he nourishes us. So this meal is an invitation to be nourished by Jesus. Out of faith, enjoying your union with Christ, feeding on him. It is a meal for those who have been united to him. So if you have not been united to Christ, if you have not in faith committed your life to him, trusting in his death, burial, and resurrection for your forgiveness of your sins, for your eternal life, this meal is meant to exhort you. It's meant to prod you. It's meant to convict you that you are missing out on the absolutely essential aspect of life, union with Christ. And today can be your day of salvation. Rather than taking this meal, you can receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so after this meal, when you exit, if this is you, come see a pastor, a Stephen worker, out in the lobby. We would love to introduce you to Jesus. If you know Jesus, this meal's for you. It's a sacred time. It's a sacrament. It's a spiritually significant event. We're to come to the table as pure as we know to be, as innocent, without qualm. As Augustine said, we come to the table. To do that, he encourages us, examine yourself. As Paul says, he who eats or drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks destruction to himself, not life. What does that mean? That means you are harboring sin. You are knowingly holding on to sin. One of the best examples, you are knowingly holding on to a grudge against your brother or sister in Christ. Or you are knowingly holding on to your bitterness against your Savior, refusing to submit. If, if these are the types of things coming into your life, this meal is meant to convict you, not for salvation, but for repentance. Let it go by. Other than that, if you know Jesus, we want you to take this meal this morning with us. You don't have to be a member of our church. But let's pause for a moment. Let's have a moment of quiet. Examine yourself. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal any sin that may be in your heart.
that needs to be confessed this morning.